Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on the 500th episode of The Detail... Well, global warming is unfolding more quickly than feared, and humanity is almost entirely to blame. That is the dire warning of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. A new report hammering home the importance of taking immediate action to stem the catastrophic effects of... Wait a second. Haven't we been here before? Like in 2019? Millions of people displaced, a cost of trillions to the global economy. Once in a century, coastal floods happening once a year. The findings of a new IPCC report on the ocean and chrysophere suggest that's the worst case scenario if we fail to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. 2018. The new international report has found that the world will need to undergo unprecedented change in all aspects of our society if we are to reach the global warming goals made in the 2015 Climate Agreement. 2014. A report by the influential Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change endorsing fracking is raising eyebrows. The IPCC... 2013. The first part of the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC report, is due to be released tomorrow evening. So what's actually different this time around? Well... Not much when it comes to the science, but quite a lot when it comes to the messaging. So today on the podcast, Stuff's climate change editor, Aloise Gibson, joins me to talk in broad strokes about what we know about the tangible effects of climate change which we're beginning to see and how the intergovernmental group responsible for this work is trying to enlist the power of normal people, the yous and the me's of this world, to hold our decision makers to account. What is the the TLDR of this report? Um, Can can you summarise it in as few sentences as humanly possible? I think I can. The first takeaway from this report is that the effects of climate change are here and not just heat. Um, So the unprecedented heat that parts of the planet have already experienced. Temperatures in the triple digits, Death Valley is still scorching after a record-breaking summer. The National Park saw an average temperature of 102.7 degrees, making it the fourth hottest summer ever on record. It was a case of throw off the duvet and open the windows right across Canterbury last night after Christchurch recorded its hottest January day since 1979. June has been the hottest on record, with the average temperature for the month two degrees above average. That's despite the polar blast of snow and hailstorms. Temperature records were broken at 24 places around the Motu. The effects of climate change are being caused by us and they're here now. It's not something that a model on a computer is telling us is going to happen in 100 years' time. Uh, That also applies to heavier rain. The Marlborough Emergency Management Controller is urging residents against non-essential travel as more heavy rain sweeps the sounds. And other things that we can see um, human fingerprints on all around us. The second was that it's now inarguable, you know, incontrovertible that these changes are being caused by us, by our greenhouse gases, and the signal of that, like the the signal of what we're doing versus the noise of just natural variability, is now very clear as well. The third takeaway is that 
Some of these impacts are now baked in, unfortunately, no matter what we do. Even if we brought our emissions down to net zero in a short period of time, however long it is, the climate system of the world would continue to change for another 20 to 30 years. So there's 20 to 30 years of climate change built into the system where we are now. And that would take us into very, very dangerous territory. Seas are going to keep rising for centuries or millennia now because of temperature changes that we've already produced. Uh, We now can't do anything about that because those processes, you know, the melting of the, the polar ice sheets just unfolds over such a slow time. And the atmosphere is going to keep warming for 20 or 30 years now in even the best-case scenario because carbon dioxide just hangs around. It's a really long-lived gas. And, um, you know, unfortunately, no matter how quickly we act now, we're stuck with some additional impacts. And that does mean, you know, additional deaths, uh, additional costs in the, the billions probably, and um, you know other impacts. But the the final takeaway is that it's not too late to put the brakes on and stop that mm. from getting a lot worse. It's just it's like an ocean liner at full speed in the vast wide ocean. You jam the brakes on, but it still takes quite a while for it to actually come to a stop. So it's not a ship in the uh, Panama Canal. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Anyway, the IPCC is a bit of a strange collective. It involves a vast number of people from a vast number of disciplines, many of whom aren't exactly natural bedfellows. I think for climate scientists, it's like the Olympics, you know. But it doesn't just bring in physical, atmospheric, chemist-type climate scientists. It brings in the people who look at the economic costs, at the impact on the insurance industry, um, what it's doing to plants. So these people from all sorts of disciplines, these professional rivals, you know, people who would normally be competing for grants or um, arguing, you know, having academic arguments with each other, and they'll wrangle those differences out through this process and come up with a synthesised, agreed statement on the things that they can be pretty sure about, the things they're really sure about, and the things they're certain are happening. All in the name of science. Cool. Okay. Um, You mentioned that the previous, the most recent report before this one came out eight years ago. Is that a long time? It's a really long time for those of us who were writing about climate change. Um, But Look, it's just a a reflection of the sheer amount of work that goes into it. So this time around, the IPCC did put out some interim reports. You might remember the report on 1.5 degrees. Perhaps 10 million people are going to be affected just by sea level rise alone if we can't hold the world's climate at 1.5. Perhaps another 420 million will be affected by heat stress. These are realities for the Pacific. This will be a shock for the rest of the world because it's the end of magical thinking that we can somehow put this off. That was really influential and that's what saw our government put into law, the Zero Carbon Act, which commits New Zealand to doing its bit to helping the globe stay inside 1.5 degrees. There were also reports on ice, reports on agriculture that came out in between. But this is the big one. This is the one that's considered the most authoritative, the most up-to-date, the most thorough and comprehensive. And um, the really interesting thing about these reports is that the summary of them gets kind of 
vetted, if you like, by government representatives. Mm. So actually, there's been two weeks of Zoom meetings ending last Friday where the key authors from all around the world, including some New Zealanders, kind of wrangled back and forth with government representatives over what the final words of the summary were going to say. Yeah, and that's an important point that we will come on to a little bit later on. Um, One figure that you have mentioned several times, and as you said, there's an IPCC report dedicated to this, is 1.5 degrees. Why is 1.5 degrees so important? So in some ways it's a number plucked from the air. Like (laughs) I hesitate to say that, but, you know, there's no magic to to 1.5 versus 1. Obviously 1.4 would be better. 1.3 would be better, but we're stuck... We can't achieve those numbers now. So I guess you could describe it as the nearest achievable number. I guess from a political point of view, it was the bottom range of the 1.5 to 2 degrees that nations signed up to under the Paris Agreement. So thinking has changed. We used to think 2 degrees would be okay. That 1.5 degree report really showed that 2 degrees wasn't okay. Explain that to me, because I'm thinking, if I am out... Um, sunbathing, and it's 25 degrees. I have no idea if it's 25 degrees or 25 and a half degrees. Absolutely no clue. Why why does 0.5 of degree make such a big difference when we're talking about climate change? That's an interesting question because you're you're talking about the difference between averages and extremes, right? So the average temperature, you're right, it doesn't really impact you. I mean, I have no idea what the average temperature was this winter. I just know that I haven't put my fire on as many times as I normally would, right? But Where it makes a difference is in those extreme impacts that you start to see when the average moves. So the average doesn't matter to you, but uh, rainfall is is a good example. So every fraction of a degree that the air warms, it can hold a certain amount more water. So if New Zealanders say a degree hotter now than it used to be, scientists can calculate the percentage of extra rain that the air can hold and can calculate the hundreds of millions of dollars of damage that that results in flooding. So when the rain does come down and dumps on the west coast of the South Island or um, Coromandel or wherever it hits, there's a percentage change in that that really matters, like to the chances of a dam breaking, for example, because all of our flood defences are built to the climate that we're used to. So it's those kind of compound impacts and those extreme impacts are just way out of proportion to what you would expect given an extra half a degree or an extra degree. That is a great answer. That actually really put it into perspective. So, like, we already get screwed over sometimes by extreme weather events, by extreme rainfall or extreme flooding. If the average temperature warms by even 0.1 of a degree, then A, those sorts of events become more likely, and B, they become more extreme. That's absolutely right. Um, And for us, drought is going to be a huge thing because we have this huge agriculture sector that is built around the conditions that we're used to and is irrigated for the conditions that we're used to. And that is going to shift at even what seem like relatively small average changes. So the potential for, you know, millions, billions of cost is really, really high. Um, It's the same with sea level rise. Like if you imagine the ocean rising, you know, it's risen, I think, 20 centimetres so far. Mm. And if you're at the beach, you think, meh, 
20 centimetres. Like, who cares, right? Yeah. Just means I can sit, sli- I have to sit slightly further back on the beach. Just move your towel 20 centimetres. I mean, the first thing to remember is that <laughs> 20 vertical centimetres. So it's not just move your towel 20 centimetres in on the sand because um, that's not quite how it works. But um, you're raising the base for the extremes. So when you get a storm surge, which might get more extreme if we have more intense um, cyclones, you have a storm surge on top of a higher base. So how much further you can push inland, um, you know, it might only be a, a metre or two of sea level rise, but you might see the flood go 100 metres further inland, which is just way out of proportion to what you would expect. So there's all kinds of ways in which these quite small average changes actually really hurt people. Within this report, um, we can say that we're no longer on higher than the highest emission scenario, which was uh, kind of the bad news a few years ago. With some of the changes and developments and some of the pledges and policies being made around the world, we can can say we're not uh, tracking that worst case uh, scenario, which is great. But we're still in in an environment where even the pledges that uh, governments are making around the world don't put us... uh, down to near one of these low emission scenarios that that guarantee that stabilised climate. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Cutting carbon dioxide emissions means doing less of what? In New Zealand, uh, it's industry and transport that drive carbon dioxide. So some of our biggest sources are, let's see, steel production, burning coal, uh, burning coal to dry milk powder for export, uh, driving our old, clunky petrol vehicles, and um, then some kind of wild card things like losses from soil um, or other things like that that maybe aren't so obvious. But for our long-lived gases, of which carbon dioxide is one in New Zealand, uh, it's really cars, trucks, flying, flying overseas, heavy industries, those big, hot processes that require things to be melted at really high temperatures, um, to manufacturing, and then a whole bunch of things that are kind of silly and that you wouldn't expect, like coal boilers heating schools or, you know, hospitals or big, you know, gas heating systems for horticulture or things like that. Um, And there's actually a surprising amount of that still around. Yeah. Oh, electricity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, you've probably seen the blackouts in the news this week. Thousands of New Zealanders had their power cut off last night on one of the coldest nights of the year. It wasn't a power cut, but a deliberate rolling blackout to manage electricity demand, which had reached an all-time high. One of the issues that New Zealand faces is that we still burn quite a bit of coal and a substantial amount of gas to give us that base load security of supply for our electricity obviously wasn't quite as secure mm. um, recently as as it would say on the label but um, you know getting rid of that 15-ish percent of our electricity generation is proving really thorny um, and absolutely does need to happen. See the, the thing about this though is that I mean, I suppose the shorthand for that is what causes emissions? Well, humans cause emissions. Like, if we if transport causes emissions, humans need to transport themselves. I mean, that is the world that we kind of live in, right? Like, humans need to transport themselves around, and transporting yourself around causes emissions. Humans need to eat, and farming food and agriculture causes emissions. Yeah. I mean, humans only make emissions because the methods that we have been given so far to do all those things are fossil fuel burning 
options. That's just the society we live in. These are inventions that were made before we knew what we were doing to the climate. And there are alternatives for almost all of them. Um, There are a couple of exceptions, um, steel smelting probably being one of them, haven't quite cracked that one yet. But for things like transport, for example, we actually know what to do about it. And in many cases, doing these things would be more enjoyable for people, more pleasant for people. But they do require change and for governments and local governments and companies to kind of get on with it. And we don't like change. Humans don't like change. I don't don't know, maybe I mean, New Zealand actually changes really quickly. I would push back on that a little bit. I mean, New Zealand has... Think about how much New Zealand has changed just in your lifetime, right? Like, I didn't have a cell phone when I was a teenager. Things have really... Things do change, and when we have good options that are attractive to us, we'll actually adopt them really quickly. We might kind of lament the old days and feel nostalgic, but... We're actually capable of being really um, adaptive and and kind of innovative, but we need to know what to do and we need some help. And I think that's where the change probably needs to happen. There's almost like a natural evolution or like cause and effect element to this, eh, in that fossil fuels have, in, in harnessing the energy from them, have allowed us to do wonderful and amazing things and develop wonderful and amazing technologies. And I guess logically you would think, well, the best use of the fossil fuels to develop these amazing technologies is to figure out how not to use fossil fuels anymore. And there are so many, you know, there are so many great advances that are happening. I think where we've been handicapped is that the first IPCC report came out in 1990 mm. and the fundamental message hasn't actually changed that much. It's certainly gotten stronger and more solid and more widely accepted, but there's nothing in the latest report that most researchers didn't know 30 years ago. So had we started in earnest on this transition 30 years ago, um, we would actually have a lot of these things cracked by now. We're certainly capable of doing it. You mentioned just then that there isn't that much that is different in this report, or not that, you know, there's no scoop necessarily. So what is different about the report? Maybe harking back to what you were talking about in terms of Governments have to agree on the wording of this, and the wording of this is different to how it's been in previous iterations? I think the wording is stronger. I think the wording is easier for normal people to understand. The IPCC reports have been very, very dense in the past. Even the summary for policymakers, which is the part that's supposed to be really succinct and written for politicians and the public, um, has been virtually unreadable in parts, to be honest. Um, this version is is clearer and cleaner. Look, I'm going to read you the first line of the headline statements from the summary for policymakers because I think that will get across the shift. It says, It is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere and biosphere have occurred. The next line says, the scale of recent changes across the climate system as a whole and the present state of many aspects of the climate system are unprecedented over many centuries to many thousands of years. Human-induced climate change is already affecting many, many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. 
Now that's something that you can kind of grasp, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, so it's not that this is anything that hasn't been said before, but it's it's clearer and stronger. This is something that affects all of us. This is the most authoritative statement on something that affects all of us in virtually every aspect of our lives. We should be able to understand it. Um, we should be able to read it. And so that's a huge advance for me. You know, governments push back. Some in particular yeah. will really try to get particular words taken out. Often that succeeds. The scientists won't let them put anything in there that's not correct. But sometimes the bolder statements get watered down for political reasons. So if you think of this as the most politically palatable, sanitised version of the science, it becomes even more striking. That's all for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. And if you want to get in touch, email us, thedetail at rnz.co.nz. Jeremy Ansell engineered this episode. Mark Jennings produced it. And thanks to Eloise Gibson. And before I go, a special thanks today for all those who helped launch The Detail nearly three years ago and who continue to support us now, especially all the specialist reporters, many of them from organisations outside RNZ and the experts around the country. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. Kaki te anō.